0: You're listening to the OLLI at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, where we offer courses, events, and more for adults age 50 and better. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at at olli.unt.edu. now, let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member Susan Supak, as she sits down for another conversation with one of the people who makes our program so special. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with the internationally acclaimed soprano and mezzo-soprano Molly Fillmore, a professor of voice and the chair of vocal studies at UNT's College of Music Administration, one of the nation's largest and most dynamic colleges of music. Molly's teaching career began when she was completing her Master of Music degree at the University of Maryland at College Park, when she gave private lessons at the prestigious National Cathedral School for Girls and St. Albans School for Boys in Washington, D.C., Quite impressively, Molly graduated magna cum laude from American University in Washington, D.C., and was in her sophomore year there when she made her solo operatic debut with the Washington National Opera at the Kennedy Center Opera House. From there, she taught at Michigan State University, making her professional debut as a dramatic soprano with the Metropolitan Opera. Welcome, Molly. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I have to ask you how you first became interested in singing. Is it something that you've been involved in your whole life?
1: Well, I came from a naturally musical family. Um, My first uh, music lessons were in piano, which I started at the age of four. And then in fourth grade, I began flute lessons, playing the flute in the school band, And then in fifth grade, I added uh, trombone and piccolo. And it was in sixth grade that I started voice lessons. So it wasn't that I was specifically interested in singing, but I think music was just always a central part of my life. I think I assumed that everybody was musical because my family was naturally musical. And it was sort of a surprise to me later on in life to discover that not everybody could pick up instruments quickly or carry a tune or have good rhythm. I just kind of took that for granted. Music was just something that always came very easily and that I did without thinking very much about it. It wasn't until perhaps my senior year in high school when I got a couple of solos and a lead in a musical that I thought, oh, okay, maybe I'm a little above average in terms of um, capabilities in singing. And then as I... Got older and, and started college then it became clear that oh maybe there is actually a t- talent that's professional level.
0: Is your family professional as well? No,
1: not at all. They're just very <laughs>
0: musically talented. Yes, yes. That's great. Now for those people who do not have an understanding of opera or have not been educated with opera are not familiar with that, what would you suggest that people do?
1: Well, you know, I was in the first opera I ever saw. I did not go into opera knowing anything about it. Is that right? Oh, my goodness. I had never seen an opera when I was cast in the chorus uh, back when I was a sophomore at American University in the production of The Flying Dutchman with the Washington National Opera. And so I would say I compare it to going to an art museum In the sense that I think some people shy away from going to an art museum because they feel like they have to know everything about the art and they have to look at it in a very educated way and pick out these details that only experts would really know rather than just going in and looking at the things they see on the wall and think, I like this one, I don't like this one, which is totally fine to do. But I think there's this feeling that if people are going to engage in some kind of high art form or something that's artistically complex, that they have to know a lot about it before they even do it and be experts on it. And that's not the case. So I would say that if someone is not familiar with opera and they want to be, something that might help their experience at a performance would be to Read the story before they go because oh, familiar with the story. Very well. Because it's likely to be in a foreign language and that might help the understanding. Although most companies will use what we call surtitles, which are the translations that are shown on a screen above the stage. But still, having a general sense of the story would help. And maybe listening to some recordings of some of the highlights from the opera. So when they hear those tunes, that will be something familiar. But I think the main thing is to just go in with the expectation that you're just going to sit back and relax for a few hours. And you don't have to have any kind of expert opinions. And you don't have to see it with a critic's eye. You can just go and watch and listen and just enjoy the time sitting in the theater.
0: Well, you've been kind enough to share your skill and expertise with Ollie in offering Opera 101 and i have to say we have heard rave reviews people found it tremendously helpful and interesting is this the kind of thing that you tell people in opera 101
1: Yes, I did encourage people to go in with a relaxed approach and and not to worry about it. No one's going to give them a quiz or a test at the end (laughs) of the performance. And to also, with opera, it tends to be a very long night in the theater. And not every moment is going to keep one on the edge of their seat. There are going to be slow moments. There are going to be moments where... Yeah, people might even get a little bored. But then there are those moments that are just so amazing that it makes it all worth it. And I think I got... It's sort of a lot of chuckles and a positive response when I admitted that almost every opera performance I go to, there is a moment where I get a little bored. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> but I would still go anyway because there are moments that are so magical that it's so worth, it. it's just, it's kind of like life. I mean, there are moments where you're just like, oh, this isn't my favorite, but then there are moments that are just incredible. And I think if people just understand that and not expect to understand all of the music and all of the nuances of the plot and just sit back and relax and take what they get from it. That is
0: so tremendously helpful for someone like me who is not a true opera connoisseur i don't know a lot about operas and to know that you can go in there and just enjoy the performance mm-hmm. and do a little prep work
1: yeah, and that, enjoy it even helpful. more yeah. it makes
0: so much sense yeah. now you have quite an educational background and your background in performance i have to say when you decided to take this path that you've taken was there a great deal of work involved did you have to practice considerably every day? Does it require tremendous dedication?
1: I mean of course the, the hours of practice are necessary and such but what really requires the dedication is the commitment to go into a profession That is a roller coaster in terms of the job experience, and you're going to have a job, and then you might have a period where you have no work, and then you have a great job, and then no work. It goes up and down a lot. Is it very
0: competitive also? It's
1: exceptionally competitive. There are a lot more singers out there who want to sing than there are companies hiring them. And so the commitment is largely about saying I I really have got to do this and want to do this and I'm willing to sacrifice a lot of things in order to keep on going with this. So it's a commitment to a lifestyle that won't necessarily promise much money, won't promise steadiness, benefits, (laughs) those kinds of things. I mean, it's a tough road to take so that's I think where the biggest commitment comes is to say you know I've I've really got to do this or at least I've got to do it for a certain period of time or at least I've got to try. I always uh, warn students away from saying I'm going to do it because I want to because it's far too competitive. There are a lot of people who want to sing professionally and and don't get hired professionally so it's not the kind of thing that wanting it enough and practicing enough is, is going to guarantee it there are lots of factors that come in, including just being at the right place at the right time.
0: Sounds like a lot of life. (laughs) It also sounds like something that if someone is passionate enough, I remember, I I think it was Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Outlier, he Mm -hmm. had written something about being a rock star, Mm -hmm. and that If people want to be rock stars and they're passionate enough about it, they don't care where they play. They don't expect to be in the arena if they're playing in a little wherever, cafe somewhere, but they're playing and they're playing and they're playing. And it's the the hours to a practice involved.
1: Yeah, I mean, I certainly never expected I was going to end up at the Met, but when I decided to study music, I decided to do it because I thought, well, No matter what I'm doing, if I go to work and I'm working with Beethoven and I'm working with Mozart as my colleagues, that will be good in whatever capacity it ends up being. So I think I encourage students to look at it that way so that it's not about I want to sing and I'm going to end up at the Met because I want to sing. It's it's about kind of what you mentioned. It's about I want to be surrounded by music and I'm just going to see where that takes me.
0: Now, you had an international career, as a mezzo-soprano, before switching to a dramatic soprano Mm -hmm. repertoire. Can you explain the difference between a mezzo-soprano and a dramatic soprano?
1: Well, in concert music, they call it soprano-alto-tenor bass. In opera, we have different classifications, and so I originally was what the equivalent is to an alto. And sometimes the the voice takes a long time to mature. For most adults, the voice is in its prime maybe between mid-30s to fifty.
0: Really? And so, I'm so surprised yeah. to hear that. How <laughs> um, interesting. You
1: know, certain voices can mature a little more early, but but it's an ongoing process because the voice is part of us and it continues to mature. But as opposed to dancers who, for example, maybe finished with their careers in their 20s, exactly, or, opera singers are just getting started in terms of maturity, so you often don't really know the full extent of what the instrument's going to be, especially with some of the larger or heavier instruments until someone's in their late 20s, and then they can sort of see all of the material that they have to work with. So it was basically a voice type change going from lower music to higher music that I wasn't able to do until my voice had reached a certain level of maturity.
0: So you're training the muscles in your vocal tract. If it matures between, you say, 30 and 50,
1: Well, that's kind of considered, I would say, the prime time. Okay, so
0: there must be quite a bit of the expertise involved because I'm trying to think in terms of an athlete and their athletic ability and when that waxes and wanes and, of course, the football players and you say the dancers, it's much earlier. So it must be quite a bit of the skill and expertise in learning how
1: to use your vocal musculature, am I right in saying that? Well, it's really the whole body that that engages in the act of our singing. I mean, we're like dancers in that our body is our instrument, as opposed to a a trumpet player who might play the trumpet and then put the trumpet away in a nice velvet-lined case, and then (laughs) it's safe and protected. And one of the biggest challenges we have is that our voice is active with us as part of our body all the time. And even speaking, how we speak, can have a direct impact on our ability to sing well. So, for example, if people speak in a very kind of rough way, very, very low or kind of bravely, that's not going to help their singing. So it's really an entire body experience to breathe in a coordinated way, to keep the muscles engaged and yet relaxed at the same time, supple, flexible, yet strong. It's an extremely complex coordination that is required in order to take these small little vocal cords and produce enough sound to fill an opera house and project over an orchestra. And there are all kinds of, which I won't go into here, but there are all kinds of like elements of physics that have to do with it, something called the singer's format, range of frequencies, etc. But it does take a lot of training. But at the same time, it's really about the throat. It's really about what one is born with, and there can be people who really want to sing opera, and they love it, and they study it, but they just weren't born with the right vocal cords. They right? just don't have they the right equipment have, yeah, for the
0: frequencies that they need to sing?
1: Yes, and or, in order to get to the voice to the point where it can consistently sing in that way. So it's kind of like someone who just would love to play in the NBA, but they're five foot two. They're probably (laughs) not going to be able to do it. It's just they could really want to and be a great athlete in other ways, but it's just very unlikely that they're going to be able to compete in that venue. So it's the same thing with singing. And, And I've seen singers who are good expressively with their voice, but if the vocal cords aren't there, they're just not there.
0: With all that complexity, I can see why... You gave those age ranges for a mature voice. Mm-hmm. It's quite a learning process, I'm sure. Now, do you have to watch the kinds of things I know you mentioned about your speaking voice, mm-hmm. but in order not to abuse your instrument, which is your body and mm-hmm. your, your vocal cords, your whole... Vocal track. Do you have to be careful in what you eat? I'm sure you can't smoke. That right. has to be horrible. <laughs>
1: well, although I've known some European singers who smoked back when I worked in Germany, uh, <laughs> there were several who did. But uh, it's not advisable. No, I think definitely having a, a good, a healthy diet, and especially a good sleep routine, is very important. The more we can take care of our bodies and have them feel consistent from day to day is really beneficial because if you're, for example, waking up at different times every morning and your body's not going to have a real consistent sense of itself and it really needs that so that whenever you go into a practice room it's always every given day your voice might feel a little different so the more you can do to keep things as consistent as possible the better and yeah that absolutely includes just overall general good health habits i will say that we have the extra challenge in north texas of all the allergens yes and so that's really hard on our singers that's really hard on our singers because of During peak times in our allergy season, there will be many students who come in and they just can't do their lesson on that day because uh, cords are swollen and, and other things. because They've been coughing or they're, they're very phlegmy Absolutely. as a result of allergens. Yeah. So that's a particular challenge we have here.
0: Right, that was going to be my next question, actually, was I was wondering if it would make a difference with the seasons, and mm-hmm. obviously seasonal it is. I would imagine even the heat the dry heat that comes yeah, on in the wintertime. Yeah,
1: something. I did a production of Zalame once in Arizona, and... I flew in, and by the time I got to the hotel, I had stopped at a drugstore to buy a little humidifier because I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to sing here with this dryness unless I have the humidifier on all the time. So hydration would
0: be important. Absolutely. Are there optimal areas in the world or in the United States for singers to live? Or is that a little hard to say?
1: (laughs) I think that's probably an individual thing. I mean, some people are more affected by the dryness than others. While I can't necessarily say what's good for most people, I will say that this area is challenging for a lot of people because of our high amount of allergens.
0: Well, you have such an incredible background. I know you have performed in Switzerland, Mm -hmm. Germany, Austria, China, as well as very many cities in the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like for you?
1: It's always interesting to go to a different place and to meet a bunch of new people and see how things are different and see how they're the same.
0: Did you ever feel nervous for performances? Is that something natural for you or no?
1: Well, I would say that my nerves are probably average or slightly better than average. I would say that's never been a big issue for me, especially once I started performing more often. But I would say by the time... I got to college, you know, just doing some random things in high school and stuff. I would already gotten up on stage and sung enough solos that it wasn't so horrible for me to do. That's impressive Um, (laughs) because you
0: sang when you were a sophomore in college at the Kennedy Center Opera House, so that impresses me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think preparation is key. If you're really well prepared for something then you're going to have a lot less in terms of nerves... And I've seen that with performance before. I mean, the, the less prepared they are, the more nerves they have. Or if their technique is not quite up to the job, they're going to be more nervous. But still, I would say for me, I've been fortunate that nerves were never such a big problem. I tended to call it excessive adrenaline. <laughs> and i um, pretty fortunate in that regard. Because I know for a lot of singers, a lot of performers, I mean, they It's a a huge battle and drives a lot of people to to stop performing because they just can't deal with all the nerves.
0: With the stress involved. Um, Have you had any interesting experiences during your career that come to mind that you'd like to share?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I would say, for example, well, if I think of it in terms of big, kind of divided into big portions or chunks, the, the Kennedy Center, which is sort of where I got my start during my college years, I mean, that was fascinating because it was the Kennedy Center, and it's a building with seven theaters in it, in the one structure. And being in Washington, D.C., there were often people who were very famous politically or even world leaders who would come in, Supreme Court justices, things like that. So that was a... And it was it's a gorgeous building, the Kennedy Center. And so that was a fascinating place to sing. And it was a beautiful place to sing. So I was always grateful. Every time I stepped in the door there and got to sign my name on the sign-in sheet that I was part of that. And then Germany was very interesting because the productions in Europe tend to be very avant-garde in terms of style. They don't like traditional productions, so they tend to do kind of zany different zany things that might on the at least on the surface or maybe even deeper than the surface have very little to do with what's actually written in the text that we're singing so there were some really off-the-wall productions there but for my first big experience as a soloist or extensive period as a soloist that was really great education because it's sort of taught me to make do with whatever strange stage directions or sets I had to deal with to still tell the story. And then the next period of time was more freelancing, you know, here and there, different places. That was more travel-intensive, going here and there and always meeting new people. And then I'd say the most recent, more extensive period of time I spent was at The Met, where I was for seven seasons, both covering and performing and that, of course, was fascinating as well. That's impressive. Because it's the Met and right. just being down in the canteen and talking with people and just experiencing that company, which was unlike any other company I had ever done with before, just in terms of scope. I mean, such a massive, massive place in terms of the quantity of productions, in terms of all of the logistics and everything they've got going on there at one time. And, of course, all of the tradition that's there and the reputation. It was was just an amazing experience. And then, of course, when both productions that I did there, the Ring Cycle and the Satyagraha were shown in the live and HD that they do, which is broadcast around the world in the movie theaters. And so experiencing that as well and that process was really Really fun and interesting too. Although the pressure is very high, of course, when I'm you know sure. that it's it has that to be. and and um, you go on stage and you know they've got all of these cameras going and it's live and people around the world are tuning in and it's all very close up, uh, you know the pressure is is pretty great there. It must be remarkably satisfying
0: to get to that point in your career where you're performing at that level.
1: I. Never took it for granted. <laughs> I was always very grateful, and but like I said, my goal was not to do that. My goal was just to sing and to be in music, and I, I really think that that has helped me over the years because I didn't ever say, I want to be an opera singer and see my name in lights and sing at the Met. I just said, I want to sing <laughs> and see where it takes me, and I think that throughout my career was beneficial because, you know, it didn't mean It wasn't like self-deprecating or setting my standards too low. It just, I think, was being realistic about the fact that the career is very unpredictable. And you may be fortunate enough to get that far, but you may not be. And you just have to keep working and see where you go.
0: That sounds like (laughs) incredibly wise advice for any career, any journey that someone wants to take to become accomplished in anything that they're doing in life. I noticed in college you received an award, I believe it was from American University, Mm -hmm. for contributing to the community and performing within the community. I can only imagine that that must have been a wonderful way for you to learn your craft, to be able to learn it and perform at the same time.
1: Yeah, I was very lucky because I had originally started at American University, not for music, but for international relations, because... Good school for that, too! Yeah, at the time, at least, it may still be, it had the largest school of international service in the country. So that's why I went there. I was in their SIS program. But What happened was that I started getting hired to sing professionally. So after my sophomore year, when I changed my major to music, I thought, well, I'm just going to study music. Maybe I should go to a conservatory, because that's what music students do. They go to conservatories, right? But I looked around, and I realized that by that time, I had started singing with the Washington National Opera, and I had started to get other concerts around the area, and I thought, well, why would I go? I can try to go to a school in New York City or somewhere else, a conservatory, but I would be leaving this professional work that I'm already doing. I'm already a known quantity here, and I'm just going to be a junior in college college, it seems like a really good situation. Mm-hmm. And I really loved America, and I, I, even though I didn't go for one of their primary fields that they're known for, and I switched to music, the professors there were very good in music. And I loved the campus. I loved the school. So I thought, well, I've got great things going on professionally here. I love America, and I'll just stay. And I did. Well, we're glad you did, <laughs> <laughs> it certainly paid off. <laughs> Are you performing anywhere right now? Well, right now I'm putting together a recital for actually the Amherst Poetry Festival with the Emily Dickinson Museum. I'm going out there to do a lecture recital on songs set to texts by Emily Dickinson in September. And then, come October or November, probably the beginning of November, I'll be holding a CD release party for a new CD that I recorded with a fellow UNT colleague, Dr. Elvia Puccinelli. And we recorded songs by the American composer Juliana Hall. And one of the song cycles is set to poems that I wrote. And the subjects uh, of those poems are American female visual artists, six different female visual artists that, about whom I wrote texts. And Juliana Hall wrote the music to that. that so is that's so that's going to be coming out this fall.
0: This fall, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. And how does a person go about getting a copy of that?
1: Well, I'm sure it will be announced on my website, which is molly-fillmore.com. And also UNT College of Music will be putting out notices about that, too. I look
0: forward to hearing it. Will your Emily Dickinson performance be recorded as well? She's one of my favorite (laughs) (laughs) poets.
1: Yes, I'm sure I will be recording it and putting up excerpts on YouTube, etc. And I'm sure the Poetry Festival is going to be recording things as well.
0: Wonderful.
1: Yeah, it's actually, I'm looking forward to it. It's uh, an idea I came up with, which they accepted. I wanted to do something that would bridge pop culture with Emily Dickinson, to sort of bring in different kinds of crowds and different age groups. So sometimes in magazines and things, they'll do something called who wore it best, and they'll show a dress, different people wearing the same dress, or different people wearing the same suit, and people's this one, this one, or this one. And so what I'm going to do is present different pairings of Emily Dickinson poems set by two different composers, and the audience is going to get to vote on who wore it best, which composer... <laughs> I want to be there. <laughs> Which composer set the song better? So I well, think a, it will be a lot of fun. What a clever idea. So I'll introduce Good for the, you. the um, composers and then a little bit about them and then recite the poem and then we'll perform the two different songs set to the same words and then the audience will vote on. Them wore it best?
0: Sounds like it is a very creative and fun thing to do all at the same time. Congratulations. (laughs) Now I am totally putting you on the spot here. Would you like to sing a little bit for us as we close out our interview?
1: How about if I do some notes? (laughs) Because uh, I, I could sing my opera voice. There are many voices in one, I guess you could say, in the operatic voice is going to be very different in terms of acoustic versus what I might do if I were singing like musical theater or something like that. But I can sort of demonstrate over my range for example. That would be wonderful, Okay, thank you. Let me step, I'm gonna sit a little further away from the microphone <laughs> because for when we sing, microphones are not used to that. So I'll feel more comfortable if I'm not so close to the sure. mic. <laughs> so I'll start down kind of near the bottom
0: Wow. Now, I don't know if that comes across via the podcast, as incredible as it is in person, but I have to say, just hearing your notes, I would love to hear you in an opera. (laughs) What an experience that would be. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been wonderful talking to you. I very much appreciate it, and I look forward to your Ollie classes in the future. Thank Thank you. you. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Molly Fillmore. Thanks for listening.